Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. Well, I'm going to ask you to uh, do me a favor this morning, and that's uh, indulge me for a little bit. I think my heart would like to jump to the end, you know, and just talk about where we're going to end up. But I don't think the end will make much sense if we don't do the beginning. So, as we think about the world we're living in and the things that are happening around us in the Ukraine and the Hammer family and Rebecca's loss and also gain. Uh, I just want to be sensitive to all of that, so I'm going to launch into some other things, but we're going to end up back over there. So you'll indulge me for a minute? We're entering into the Lenten season. If you're new here, uh, just to be up front with you, we're a little schizophrenic. Uh, We're not highly liturgical, and yet we do lean into some liturgical seasons of the year, and one of those liturgical seasons we lean into is the Lenten season, and we lean into it for several reasons. One is because I think we need it, and I'll be less specific. I think I need it, so you have to come with me because that's kind of how it works. But also because churches around the world, because of the creedal nature of this season, it is one of the moments in Christendom when the Church of Jesus Christ, under whatever label it carries, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, Anglican, whatever branch of the tree you fell off of, most churches have some observation of the Lenten season and certainly of the Easter season. And so just a little background as to how we got here and why we celebrate. The Council of Nicaea met in 325 AD. So first of all, you may have heard it told or said that the canon of scripture wasn't set until the fourth century and and you know then they just sort of made up the canon at that point and they left out some important things and they just kind of you know arbitrarily decided on the canon of scripture let me assure you that that's not how we got our bible we know as late uh, as early as the end of the first century that the church fathers though illegal to be a part of the church and underground uh, experienced their first case of someone threatening the authority of Scripture. Marcion was declared the very first heretic of the church because he wanted to excise pieces of what was celebrated as the Scripture, the canon of Scripture, the standard of Scripture. That's at the end of the first century. It's just that legally the church couldn't meet to officially do these things until in the fourth century Constantine, the emperor of Rome, converts to Christianity and makes Christianity legal in the empire. Uh, That occasion then creates the Roman Church, Catholic meaning universal. The Roman Catholic Church comes into existence at the moment of Constantine's conversion, and the Council of Nicaea is the first official council that meets. They're probably best known for the Nicene Creed, a creedal statement of the basic beliefs of Christianity. But they're also known for the 20 canons, the 20 proclamations they made about the life of the church, practical proclamations. The fifth canon is the canon of the Lenten season. They decided on the name Lent because the root word means 40. And they were mimicking the preparation for Passover that existed in Judaism before the Christian church came along. 
And so they chose the Lenten season because it represented 40, and they based it on the wilderness experience of Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Now, they didn't exactly do the math, and so they simply said, six weeks before Easter, we will begin the season of Lent. Six weeks times seven days is... This is a participation moment. <laughs> there aren't many of these, so try to be in this. Six, yeah. <laughs> You can open your phone and use your calculator if need be. <laughs> Six weeks of seven days is 42, so it was close. It wasn't exactly 40, but it was close. It took 100 years for them to realize that uh, that was not sufficient. But they didn't, get, they didn't decide to change it because they were over. They, do, they realized that Sabbaths were not days of actual fasting, and so they had to take them out of the original numbers. So they subtracted the six Sabbaths from the original 42, and if you take 6 from 42, you get 36. It took another 100 years for them to correct this problem. It is not until the 6th century that someone says, you know, we could add 4 days, and then we could have an actual 40-day Lenten season, although it would really be 46, but you don't have to fast on the 6th Sabbath, so you're with me? So in the 6th century, they added a Saturday, Friday, Thursday, Wednesday, four days, and gave birth to what eventually became known as Ash Wednesday. And so this coming Wednesday, we will celebrate Ash Wednesday. It's the four days prior to the original six weeks, minus the Sabbaths, and if you do all the math, you get... 40 days of fasting in preparation for the season of Easter. The Council of Nicaea also set the date of Easter. And just so you know, it is still true today that Easter is the first, is the first Sabbath following the first full moon after the vernal equinox. Did everybody know that? I see you taking notes. I appreciate that. It is the first Sabbath after the full moon of the vernal equinox. That's important. That's why Easter moves around. It can be as early as March 22nd. It can be as late as April, late in April, April 28th. That's why we have this moving because we are on a lunar calendar when it comes to setting this date. Of course, we've added some traditions to the Lenten season. Ash Wednesday is the traditional time that you receive ashes on your forehead. The ashes are supposed to be the burned palm fronds from the previous Palm Sunday. And there's a great connection there. Palms and passion. We like palms, passion not so much. And so it's a sign of repentance and it's a sign of humility as we enter into the season. There's some other beautiful things about the season. The root word, the Anglo-Saxon root word from the word Lent, the Latin of it, means lengthening. And that gets us tied back into the vernal equinox. It is a season in the springtime when the days are lengthening. And things are happening in this lengthening. It's spring. The sun is out longer. Things are growing. Things are blooming. Things are blossoming. It is representative of what the church fathers really hoped we understood. You're entering into a season to quiet your heart and quiet your mind and allow the lengthening of the days and the power of the sun to act on you, to bring things to life that may be dormant, to bring things back that may have faded. <laughs> a season of rebirth, a season of coming again to life. 
And that's what we celebrate. That's what we're doing together. Father Thomas Keating calls this season a season of divine therapy. I like that. I could use a little divine therapy. How about you? I think it matters. Sometimes we think about the Lenten season as a thing we're going to do. And we we do participate in that idea. Are you going to give up something for Lent? The fasting of Lent is simply a, a reminder. You're trying to give up something that you reach for often to remind you that you're supposed to be resting and lengthening and letting God act on you. It's not because the fasting gets God to act on you. It's because the fasting reminds you that he already is, and you're going to stretch out, and you're going to let God do the work to bring things back to life that need to be brought back to life. You don't have to just give things up. You could also add something to your life. You could decide to take a walk every day and... Be prayerful in that space. But, but whatever it would take for you to feel you could lengthen and soak up the sun, that's what this season is about. So we're thinking about that, and we're thinking about that story, and we're thinking about the Lenten season and what it means. And, and obviously in this week, we're going to enter into the celebration of the Lenten season, and we're going to be a part of that together, and that's a good thing. We're introducing this new series. It's called Rivers in the Wilderness. And so the wilderness is an interesting piece of biblical storytelling. It might interest you to know that, that the wilderness in all of its forms, and by the way, I just want you to recognize whether you're with us online or you're here in the room, I'm now going to spare you a great amount of detail. I was going to share with you all of the names for wilderness through the Hebrew and then through the Greek. And then I was reading it last night, and I'm going, I don't know that I even care about this. <laughs> and if it's trivia I don't care for, I'm sure you really don't want to know, because <laughs> I like trivia. <laughs> Suffice it to say this, there are a number of ways in which the Scripture refers to this idea of wilderness. It comes in a variety of vocabulary. It occurs in all of its various forms more than 300 times in Scripture. So that you start to get the impression that the concept of wilderness, in whatever form you find it, is a pretty important theme inside of the context of Scripture. There's a lot of folks in the wilderness, in the stories. And you could talk about how the wilderness works. You could talk about the wandering in the wilderness of the children of Israel. And we would all get that. That place where they need guidance, that place where they feel lost, that place where they need food and they need water, where the basics of life are in question, where, where they don't know if they have enough strength to keep going. That's a classic wilderness story. You could talk about the wilderness, and we are, by the way, this whole series is going to feature these stories of the wilderness. You could talk about Elijah in the wilderness, the loneliness, the isolation, what it feels like to think you're the last person on earth. You're all alone in the fight. Nobody gets it but you. You could talk about the way the wilderness is the space in which not only do you have these trials, but, but the wilderness is a place where God speaks in profound ways. Incredible work is getting done in the wilderness. Sinai, you know, God is giving the law in the wilderness. God is showing up in the wilderness. These powerful images. Into the space in the New Testament where, where Jesus is baptized and the heavens open and the voice of God speaks. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And he goes to the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted 
of Satan. And you get this juxtaposition of the power and presence of God and the wandering of the wilderness and the work that's done and the things that are forming. I love this scene in the opening of Mark's gospel where we have Jesus going to the synagogue in Capernaum. And he's given the scroll of Isaiah and he opens it and he reads... There is one sin among you to, to set free the prisoners, to, to uh, heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And then he rolls up the scroll and he says, in your hearing, this is being fulfilled. And he sits down. And then the, if you remember the story, there's a man in the synagogue and, and Jesus intervenes and he heals him right there on the Sabbath in the synagogue. And it's a scandal. It's a scandal. He is breaking the rules of the synagogue. He is healing on the Sabbath. And they're like, <gasps> and then Jesus leaves the synagogue and he walks down just about one block to Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick and Jesus heals her. And she immediately gets up and makes lunch. I don't know what all the implications of that are. And this is what's fascinating. You've had the controversy over at the synagogue and, and all the Jewish leaders are in an uproar over this thing that's happened. As soon as the sun sets on the Sabbath, people begin to bring the sick and those who need to be healed. And Jesus patiently into the night prays and heals and touches. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and went to a solitary place to pray. The word solitary place is one of the classic Greek words for the wilderness. He went to the wilderness. He extracted himself from the chaos, even the good chaos. The Greek is so powerful. The disciples came beating the grass to find him. Why are you here? Come back. People are lined up to see you. They're lined up to be healed. This is the popularity we were seeking. This is what it's about. It's beginning. It's starting. The revolution is on. Anybody remember what Jesus says? Let's go away from here to a place I can teach the gospel. I'm not here for sideshows. I'm not here for chaos. I'm here about connecting humans to their heavenly father. I'm about relationship and connection. This powerful imagery. The wilderness always has three aspects in Scripture. Number one, it's geographical. You always find people going to a place, whether it's the desert or the mountains, where in the weeds, in the Garden of Gethsemane, they're always going to a place of isolation, a place of wilderness. It's geographical, but it's deeply psychological. Wilderness represents something. Something's happening to these people in the desert, in the wilderness, in the mountains, in the solitary place. Something's going on inside their hearts and minds and spirits and heads, and they're changing, and they're growing and maturing, and they're being challenged. Number three, something's happening theologically. They're learning something about God, and God is teaching and growing and drawing them in. And I don't know about you, but none of us like the wilderness. I mean, maybe we like the geographical wilderness, but we don't like the psychological wilderness very much. And so when you begin to think about the power 
of the wilderness season. We're, we're just saying in this Lenten season, there's some room for some solitary place. There's some room for some wilderness. Probably there's some room for the geographical location of the wilderness, but there's certainly some room for the psychological and the theological space of the wilderness because I don't know about you, but it seems like we need it more desperately than we ever have. A place to come away from the chaos, away from the noise, away from what we believe to be sort of what's supposed to happen. I don't know about you, but I, I keep praying for leaders and people that will fix things that are broken. Amen? And yet God must go, uh, you know what? It's not really about that. <laughs> Why don't you come over here into another space in which we talk about something besides that heaven and earth will pass away. <laughs> but I will be with you forever. We enter into this season of wilderness. The story of Abram begins with Terah. Terah is the father of Abraham. In fact, Terah has three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran has several kids, the most famous of whom is Lot. Haran dies while still in Ur of the Chaldeans. If you wanted to look that up on a map, you would find that in deep in the southern end of modern-day Iraq, the ancient site of the city of Ur. And Terah hears the voice of God saying, I want you to go to a land I have promised you. So, so Terah gathers up Lot and Haran's other two daughters and his son Nahor, and his son Abram, and Abram's wife Sarai, and Nahor's wife Milcah, and they leave for the promised land, and they travel, travel up the Tigris River Valley. They go north-north up into the very eastern end of what would be modern-day Turkey, and they stop at the city of Haran. Now, we don't know. Haran, yes, the city. The son was named Haran, and the city's named Haran. Don't get confused. The city was not named for the son. It was named for something else. Speculation among scholars is maybe it's because Ur the Chaldeans was known as a place that worshipped the sun god. Haran was a place that worshipped the moon god. So if you worship the sun god and the voice of God spoke one day, having never spoken before, you might assume that it was the moon god speaking. <laughs> just speculation. But Terah gets to Haran and stops. They just stop. And Terah lives to be 205 and he dies. And then the voice of God speaks to Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to give you a promised land, and I want you to go. And so Abram takes Sarah, and he takes Lot, his nephew, and they begin to make their way south from what is modern-day eastern Turkey <laughs> down into what we would understand and know through Lebanon, modern-day Lebanon, and down into Israel, down into the Jordan Plain. And he goes to Shechem, and then Bethel, and then Jerusalem, and then below that's Beersheba. So when you hear all these names, he's just, he's just coming down the Jordan Plain, just from north to south. He's just walking. And then he gets all the way down to the bottom of that, and he goes on to the Negev, the desert area, which would be like modern-day Gaza down into the Sinai Peninsula. If you're looking at a map, I know you're all riveted with geography. And along the way, God begins to make promises to him. And he says, all this land is going to belong to you. And he builds an altar and he sacrifices to God. And they, they create this covenant relationship. And then there's a famine. And Abram takes Lot and he takes Sarah. And they make their way all the way into Egypt because they need food. And, and as they're approaching Egypt, 
Abram says to Sarah, listen, you're a beautiful, beautiful woman. And when we get into Egypt, they're going to take one look at you, and they're going to want you, and they're going to kill me and keep you, and I don't want that to happen. So this is our plan. We're going to tell everybody that you're my sister, <laughs> and then they'll show me favor, and it'll be great. And that's what they do. They get to Egypt, and Abram tells everybody Sarah's his sister, and some of Pharaoh's household were told in Genesis. By the way, you know that this is in the Bible, right? I'm just, I'm just telling it to you. I'm not embellishing very much. <laughs> And someone spots Sarah, and they go tell Pharaoh, there's this new girl from up north, and she is really pretty. And Pharaoh says, why don't we bring her into the harem? And so she's brought into the harem. And as a result, Abram is given livestock, sheep, and cattle, and he's given gold and silver. He's given great wealth and lot along with him. And it's not very many days until things aren't going well in the house of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh <laughs> starts to ask questions. And he figures out that Sarah is not Abram's sister, but his wife. And he goes to Abram and he says, what evil thing have you done? Why would you do this to me? My whole household's fallen apart. Take your wife and take your wealth and leave this place. And so Abram now leaves for the second time, going back towards the promised land, now going north instead of south. They arrive back in the promised land and Lot has gained great wealth and and, and Abram has gained great wealth, and there's lots of flocks, and now they're fighting among themselves about you know, who's going to get the grazing land. And, and finally, Abram says to Lot, listen, this is not right. I'll tell you what, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left, and, and, and we'll settle this, and we'll just settle down in this promised land. And Lot says, I, I'm going to go right. I mean, it's not exactly what he says, but if you're looking at a map, that's what he says. And he moves over the Jordan River Valley, and he moves south into what now would really be the Dead Sea area, not really hospitable these days, to the very southern tip of what is now today the Dead Sea, around the area where old ancient Sodom and Gomorrah, those cities resided at the very bottom of the Dead Sea. Abram moves to the left. He moves to the Jordan Plain. And he makes a sacrifice to God and builds an altar. And we kind of pick up the story then in Genesis 13. Listen to the promise. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land that you see I will give you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre in Hebron, where he pitched his tents, and there he built an altar to the Lord. I just want to observe a few things about the promises of God in the, in the wilderness. Number one, some of those promises you can see. So... so Abram is standing there on the Jordan Plain, and it's beautiful. I don't know what you think about when you think about the Holy Land. I think some of us think about it. it's all desert, and there's camels, and there's wind blowing, and there's sand dunes. There is some of that. But on the Jordan Plain, you're on the edge of the Mediterranean, and it's as beautiful as any piece of the Mediterranean coastline. It's green and lush 
and beautiful. And he's standing there between the, the Jordan River Valley that transacts this, the nation of Israel north to south and the Mediterranean on that western shore. And he's standing in that fertile plain and he's looking around and God says, everything you see belongs to you. You look north and you look south and you look east and you look west and it is yours. And Abram can see the promise. It's, it's not something that's ethereal. It's not out there somewhere. It is vividly real to him. His feet are standing on it. His hands can touch it. He can smell it. And he walks it. He walks up and down it. And he can see all of it. And it belongs to him. And there's a part of the promise he can see. But there's also a part of the promise that he can't see. I will give you all of this land, and it will belong to you, and it will belong to your offspring. And your offspring will be like the dust. If you could count the dust, you could count your offspring. You're going to have all kinds of... uh, There's going to be a whole nation grow out of you. Just one little problem for Abram. He can't have the first child. He doesn't have the first child. Much less the second child, much less the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the da 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 And part of the promise he can see, but part of the promise he can't see. And the trial now for Abram is going to be to live in this space. And here's the frustration, number three. These two things are intimately connected. The promise he can see and the promise he can't see are intimately tied together. So that how can he celebrate, how can he feel good about the promise he can see because of the promise he can't see? How can he rest in it? How can he find any sort of grace in it? Because the promise he can't see makes the promise he can see almost meaningless to him. Who cares if you have great wealth if you have no one to give it to? Who cares if you have all of this land if there's no one to pass it on to? And that is the nature of wilderness. That's what it means to be in the wilderness. It means that I can see some things that are promised. I I, I experience it. It's close to me. It lifts me. It comforts me. But I can... There are other parts of this promise that I cannot see. Amen? I bet we could go around this room right now. And it wouldn't take us two minutes... I can say to you, tell me the promises of God in your life you can see. And we go, well, I'll tell you. (laughs) I know that I know that I know that I know that here are some things that I can, the only way I can explain it is God was present with me and there was grace and he was leading. And that's the only way I can talk about it. And then I could say to you, what about some promises you don't see? And something would happen inside of us. And we'd say, yeah, there's some promises that I don't see. And in all honesty, the promises I don't see are stealing the joy and the comfort out of the promises I do see. And I live in this tension every day. The tension of the promises I see, which won't let me quit. (laughs) Isn't that the definition of wilderness? 
There's enough of a promise that I believe I have a purpose. There's enough of a promise I believe I have something to live for. There's enough of a promise that I believe I'm called to something. There's enough of a promise that I believe God's in control. There's enough of a promise that I believe God has a plan. There's enough of a promise that, that, that there's this greater thing going on underneath the things I see. I, I feel that promise. I can see it. But the promise I can't see makes me say, Why? It makes, me, it makes me confused about which way to go. It makes me confused about what to say. I can't quit because the promise I see holds me in a space of faith and trust. But the promises I can't see nag at me. And, and they, they speak to me about not knowing what to do next and not how to respond. And, and what does it mean? And then I stop and I remember this. That's why these stories are in this book. That's why wilderness is referred to 300 times in the course of Scripture. Because that is the nature of life in the presence of God. We're praying it over the Hammer family right now. The promises we have seen. Faithful people. Rebecca, a light. A person of grace, principle, commitment. A family that's prayed and trusted and walked a, a dark, terrible, painful journey. And so many promises we can see. But we'd be lying if we didn't say there were some promises we can't see. And we understand God keeps his promises and he doesn't keep all of them within the context of these days we live on this earth. We, believe, we know that. That's why the writer of Hebrews, as he looks back over the terrain of these wilderness stories, says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us set aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And so sat down at the right hand of the Father. Consider him who endured such Suffering at the hands of sinful men so that you will not grow weary and give up. Because life is full of this reality. The wilderness is the space where I can see some of the promises of God. If I didn't see any of them, I'd just quit. just me but I see enough of them to keep me in here to keep me trusting to keep me moving forward to keep me believing that life is so much more than meets the eye that God is doing things behind the scene that I can't possibly comprehend or understand the challenge in the wilderness is that I do not allow the promises that I can't see to steal away 
the joy and the truth and the reality of the promises I can see. And I don't know about you, but my human nature wants to complain about the promises I don't see. I am better at complaining about the promises I don't see than celebrating the promises that I do see. And I think God is pretty explicit in his word. He kind of says, hang on, hang on. Someday, there'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more sickness. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more dying. It'll all be done. And I'll get you home. Just trust me. Just live in the promises you see. And trust me for the promises you don't see. And know this, that the tension between these two things is the very heart of wilderness. It's what it means. It's what it is. If you could let go of either end, you could be free, I guess. Might be meaningless, but at least you wouldn't be conflicted, right? Just give up. I'll get you home. Rest in the promises you see. Celebrate them. Talk about the promises you see. Talk about them. Let let it be your conversation. Let it be your language. And when you talk about the promises you can't see, think about Abraham. And think about Sarah. And think about the fact that they're still a long, long way from a child. A long, long way. And someday, Abram is going to walk into a room where Sarah is. And he's going to say, Sarah, I've got some good news. I just had an encounter with an angel, and you're about to have a baby. And Sarah's going to laugh out loud because she's 90 years old. And Abraham's 99. And the hope is all gone. Except God keeps his promises. He always does. Not always in our timing, not always the way we want. But he keeps his promises. Let's pray. God, we recognize your faithfulness to us. We recognize our limited ability to grasp it. What we want you to do is fix it. We want you to fix everything. And if you could fix it yesterday, that'd be perfect. But we recognize that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. And we trust in the promises that we can't see. In fact, the words of this song capture it so perfectly. And so as we close out this service, I I pray that as we prepare our hearts for the Lenten season, as we come back on Wednesday, and we kick off Ash Wednesday and we enter into the season of lengthening, the seasoning of the wilderness, the seasoning in which we geographically and psychologically and theologically find space for you to work and grow and bring things to life and bloom in us and forgive us and we repent and all the things that go with the imagery of this season. We're going to celebrate the promises we do see. We're going to trust you for the promises we don't see. Would you do work in each heart? Those joining us online, those that will join us in the course of the week ahead, those gathered in this room, you've spoken in this day. Don't let us leave without settling some things with you.
We pray it in Jesus' name. Will you stand? And let's respond to the word. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.